Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. You may be seated. This morning's sermon text is from Mark 6, verses 30 to 56. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gesenaret and moored to the shore. And, they, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages and cities or countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making sinners well. But thank you not just for making sick people well, but for making dead people alive. And we thank you that the mercy that we read about in Ephesians 2 and the power that we've read about in Mark 6 is evident here amongst us with your spirit. God, thank you for being kind to us. I pray that now as you preach, as, as Mason preaches, that you would speak through him for your glory and for our good as we listen. And God, I pray as we uh, begin to give of our tithes and offerings, that we give uh, joyously and generously, knowing that uh, just as the breath we receive is from you to sing your praises, the resources that we've been given, they are from you uh, for your glory, for the good of your kingdom, for the building up of your church, and for the good of our neighbors. Uh, God, thank you for loving us, and please be with us now. Amen. Amen. Res kids, you guys are dismissed to go to class, and ushers, you guys are uh, permitted to come forward. See Gary Ballard wearing a WVU shirt today. Usually that's hard these days, but we stay in strong until March. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here at Res, and we are really, really glad that you've chosen to come and worship with us. Uh, we are currently in a sermon series, so that means I'm just preaching through the book of Mark, hitting a lot of the highlights as we go through it. Um, we are, as uh, Jason just read, in Mark chapter 6, in the second half of Mark 6. Last week we were in the first half of Mark 6, and there's sort of a middle portion of Mark 6 about the beheading of John the Baptist that uh, I am not preaching uh, in this series, but it's very good, and I recommend you uh, look at it on your own sometime. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope that they're open to Mark 6. A couple of things while you're flipping to it, if um, they are not. I have really good news. Are you ready for good news? Okay. Uh, Tuesday at 2, Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we close on the Capitol Theater. So praise God for, uh, praise God for that. So uh, we're really excited. If you haven't heard, I released on my blog this week the announcement of what we're doing. Uh, we have acquired the Capitol Theater. We voted unanimously as a church to, to purchase that space. And that's going to be where we move Resurrection Church to. However, our plan was of multiplication before there was ever a decision to even make an offer on the Capitol Theater. And what I mean by that is this. My hope is that a team of people can reach the West Side indigenously, organically, and naturally through loving their neighbors, through serving their neighbors, and through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my goal was to say, as our church continues to grow, uh, this time a year ago we were about 60 on average, then about 80, now we're averaging about 100. And so as our church continues to grow, it's coming from all over the valley. And that's awesome. That's what, that's what we want. But we need to think strategically about if we're going to transform our city, how can we best do it? Maybe it's not one big church. 
Maybe it's one church, maybe it's 10 churches, maybe it's two churches, maybe it's three churches. So we started planning to plant Michael Farmer here along with a, a sort of missionary team to, to lead church services here to plant the church in this building. So there will be a church here called Risen City Church led by what will then be Pastor Farmer. And so we're really, really excited about that. So we hope uh, two things. We hope you'll consider being involved in the planting of Risen City Church right here on the west side, but we also hope that you will consider being involved with our transition to the Capitol Theater in September. So uh, my blog, distantmasonballard.com, you can go and look at uh, the sort of a few paragraph summary of what we're doing if you're interested in that. We're in the middle, uh, as we move, of what we're calling the Faithful Unto Death Initiative, where we're focusing on three things, abiding in Christ. That just means really being a Christian, right? Like following Jesus in the real stuff of everyday life. How do I abide in Christ for real in my everyday life. We're thinking about our prayer lives, our time in the scriptures, our attendance at church, and all these sorts of things. So I hope that you are abiding in Christ uh, these days. We talked last week, reminded us that we are called to go with Christ on mission, that Jesus has sent us out with the good news of the gospel to share that good news that people may know him and that they may have life and, and purpose in their lives. And third, sacrifice. We are uh, called to sacrifice for the gospel, sacrifice our money, sacrifice our time, sacrifice our energy. And I wanted to give you a brief update on how we're doing in that realm. We, uh, our tithes and offerings last month were good, uh, but they were about two grand below our goal. So my challenge for you is to continue to be faithful to the commitments that you've made. Uh, as we look forward into the Faithful Unto Death initiative to see what God will do as we move to the theater and as we plant this church, as we multiply our efforts for God's kingdom. So I'm encouraged about where we are. I couldn't be more encouraged about where we are, and it's a great honor to sort of share this update with you. So last week, there were two questions that I asked that kind of were the, the crux, the turning point of the sermon. The first question was simply this, what do we do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus, right? When you hear the name Jesus, what do you think of? Do you think religious teacher? Do you think son of God? Do you think something crazy people like to talk about and sing about and close their eyes and dance about? Or, you know, what, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? What do you do with him? Who is he? Is he the son of God? Is he not in your estimation? Is he Lord of your life? Or is he just sort of a consultant that you go to when you need things? And there's, there's a re related, that was like, Man, I gotta bring it in for a second. There's a related question. It's simply this What is Jesus doing with us? What is Jesus doing with us? How is he using us? How are we aware of his spirit in us, sort of prompting us and guiding us through life? How has he changed the reason we wake up? How has he given new meaning to our work and our play and all things in between? So, last week in the sermon, the disciples were sent out on a mission. And this week, when we pick up in our text, the disciples are sort of coming back from that mission. And Jesus is going to sort of hear what they have to say. And man, it is time after such a hard mission to rest. But there's just one problem with this. The crowds who have followed Christ all throughout the Mark and narrative show up once again. Finally, the disciples and Jesus are going to take an opportunity to go and rest. But the crowds show up and then 5,000 men, people say it was up to 20,000 people show up and uh, spend the evening with Jesus. Jesus is going to feed this whole crowd. The miracle is known as the feeding of the 5,000. Fun fact, I know you love fun facts. Outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. 
In this miracle, we see Jesus, the true shepherd of Israel, providing food for his people, multiplying matter in a way that only God can. Church, this morning we're going to see that Jesus is our good shepherd. He is God over matter. He can multiply food. He can walk on water. But even more significantly, our good shepherd, who is God, is patient with his wayward sheep. I'm reading a book for one of my seminary classes. I've taken 12 hours, and I'm I'm just an idiot. I need to stop doing that. But I'm trying to get through it. Um, And in one of these books I'm reading, um, the author argues that this image of the shepherd and the sheep is sort of the central image of how God relates to his people from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. And so he sort of traces out how um, the Lord sends under-shepherds, guys like Moses and other figures in the Old Testament. And these, these people are shepherds for God's people. And if you read the Old Testament, you know some guys like Moses, you know, they do okay. They do a pretty good job. They'd probably do a better job shepherding than I do, right? But we see some shepherds do a really terrible job. And they, they leave so much to be desired in, in the things that they do and the way that they shepherd. And so Jesus, then, is our good shepherd, the fulfillment of all the shepherds who would come for God's people. But a shepherd is really more than a teacher. A shepherd is more than a boss. A shepherd is more than a coach. Because a shepherd is sort of in the middle of everything with his sheep. He pursues his sheep. He, he loves his sheep. Church, I pray that as we look at this text today, that you will see Christ's power, that you will see him feed thousands and thousands of people with enough food for just a couple. I pray that you see his divinity as he walks on water and tells his disciples who he is, but they still have no idea. I pray this morning, quite simply, church, that we come to Jesus, each and every one of us. And I pray that as we do, we consider his patience, that this God This great God, this loving shepherd would be patient with an ignorant, hard-hearted sheep like me is a miracle. And I pray that we will rest in the simplicity of it. A Christian heavyweight passed away this week. As many of you know, uh, Reverend Billy Graham, he preached to more people uh, than any human who's ever lived. And so he, I I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, he has spoken like one person to other humans in a crowd to more individual people than any human leader ever. And I love Billy Graham, and I'm super thankful, and it has been really sweet for me this week to look back on his life and to to read a lot of his sermons and hear him. But if you read Billy Graham's sermons, or if you listen to his sermons, because he was alive during a time when we could record his sermons, right, Um, you'll notice something about him. They're just really simple. Like they're, I don't listen to it and think, wow, that's profound, you know, or wow, I'm, I'm going to go back to that guy's church every single week so I can sit at his feet and just learn all these one-liners that I can put in my journal and tweet and stuff. But there was something about the way Billy Graham preached that indicated that he was not trusting his sermon to do anything. He was trusting Christ to do everything. He wasn't trusting his sermon to do anything. He was trusting Christ to do everything. And so as I reflected on his death and the many things that that we were thinking about and people were sharing from all over the ideological spectrum, uh, and and much of which was very positive, um, that's what I take away as a preacher. And that's what I think we can take away this morning. Don't trust me, because some weeks you'll leave here and you're like, you know, that was a pretty good sermon. Some weeks you'll leave here and you'll say, that was a really good sermon. Hopefully that's most weeks, but that's probably 
not very many weeks. Some weeks you'll leave here and say, that was not a good sermon at all. That's probably most weeks. But every week, I want you to leave here saying, that's a really great God. That God is the one who meets us, God is the one who transforms us, and God is the one who works. So tonight, this morning, sorry, this morning, consider his patience, consider his goodness, and come to Jesus today. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So at this point in the narrative, if I'm the disciples, I'm pretty pumped because I don't know about you, but I love to rest. And so if it's time to rest, I'm all in. I'm like, yes, Jesus, we've been working so hard. We've been working double time. You know, we've been working overtime. Uh, now is the time that we get to rest and sort of enjoy the fruits of our labor. And sort of I picture almost this debrief, right, that Jesus and his inner circle are sitting there and all these stories from all these disciples about everything that happened. Man, I went to so-and-so's house and, and he came out with a shotgun. They didn't have shotguns then, but I went to so-and-so's house and he was excited to see me. I went to so-and-so's house and they believed this message. I went to so-and-so's house and they told me if, they step, if I step foot here again, they're going to kill me. I went to so-and-so's house. I can just see them sharing all these sort of stories about as they've gone home to home, sharing the good news of Jesus, how that may have gone. Jesus teaches his disciples. He sends them out. He has them return. He reports and evaluates them. So maybe if you're a, a boss or something, that's a helpful pattern for you this morning. Verse 31, he says, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Church, a life on mission requires two sort of rhythms, work and rest. Work and rest. Work. They had to work hard enough to really need to rest, right? And they had to work hard enough for the sake of the gospel, doing gospel labor that they needed to rest. If we are going to genuinely live our lives on mission, if we're genuinely going to live our lives in such a way that, that pleases God and, and opens up our lives as a blank check for God's kingdom, we must work, right? We must actually share the gospel with people. We must actually study the Bible. There's a great deal of work involved in it. But the second rhythm is a rhythm of rest. You have time to rest. We live in a culture that, that glorifies busyness. Some cultures glorify sort of laziness and slothfulness, but our culture really glorifies business, right? Important people are busy. So if I'm going to be important, I have to always be busy. And busyness in itself is not a bad thing, but Jesus invites in this moment his disciples into rest. It's worth noting, as we're on this topic, that in the Sabbath, Jesus commands us to rest. That, in fact, work and rest is sort of a principle built into creation, right? That, that God um, worked for six days in the creation of the world, and on the seventh day, he what? He rested. And so this sort of pattern of work and rest we th see throughout the Bible, a lack of rest may reveal that we are um, trusting ourselves rather than trusting God. A lack of rest may reflect a lack of trust. For after all, God is the one who works through us. So it's time to rest, right? It's time for rest. The work's been done. It's time to rest. But as I said a moment ago, there's one small problem. Here comes more people. Are we going to rest? Maybe not quite yet. In verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Let me sort of give how this would read if I were in the, these shoes. 
When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he was exhausted, so he pretended like he didn't see them and kept going. (laughs) That's how it would read if I were in Jesus' shoes. If it's time for me to rest after I have worked, it would be a real uh, bummer, to say the least, to look out and be like, oh boy, (laughs) there's 20,000 more people coming our way. All right, boys, well, looks like we are not going to rest. Looks like we've got some more ministry to do, but what Jesus shows us here is he is not motivated by obligation. He's not motivated by sort of a stern sense of duty alone. He's motivated by his compassion. It says he looks out at the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And as we continue reading through the book of Mark, I think an undernoted theme is Christ's compassion that we see over and over and over again. We saw it last week when he approached the woman who was bleeding. Right? Remember, Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house, and Jairus was this sort of leader of the synagogue, and um, his daughter was about to die. And he came to Jesus, and he had faith, and he said, Jesus, if you can, you can heal my daughter. Let's go. She's dying. And so they're on their way there when they are going through crowds once again, and this lady who had been bleeding nonstop for 12 years knows that Jesus is coming through, and she believes, if I can just get near him, he can heal me. He has the power to heal me. And so she does, and Jesus says, who touched me? And the crowds, the disciples, of course, are smart Alex. We'll see they are going to be that again uh, this morning. But they say, oh, who touched you? I don't know. It could be him, 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 her, 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 him, her. There's thousands of people here. Jesus, anyone could have touched you. And he's like, no, like someone touched me. And the lady came and bowed at his feet. And he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. He was moved with compassion in this interaction. He was moved with compassion to go and heal Jairus' daughter. And today he looks out at the crowds and he's moved with compassion. When I look at the crowds, right, in the most general, broadest sense, what do I see? Do I see a pestilence? Do I see a nuisance? Do I see my enemies, my political enemies, my social enemies, my religious enemies, my whatever? Jesus didn't see any of these things. He saw sheep without a shepherd. My compassion may run dry when I'm exhausted, or it may get very, very close to dry, but Jesus does not. Because when Jesus looked out into the crowd, what he saw were people who did not know how to live. What he saw were people with hurts that needed healing. What he saw were men, women, boys, and girls who had scars. And he saw men, women, boys, and girls who had stars with stories, scars with stories behind them. He saw people who needed a leader. He saw people who needed a teacher. He saw people who needed um, sort of a, 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 a Lord over their lives. He saw people, though, who really needed a shepherd. They needed someone to get in the muck and mire of their reality and walk with them through it. I pose a question to us, church. What do we see when we see just crowds and herds of people? Maybe when we understand the genu- genuine populace, we uh, look through the lens of politics Maybe we look through the lens of race. Maybe we look through the lens of reputation. But I want to challenge us that we have to look through the lens of the gospel. We have to understand the world through God's plan for it, not the way I think it should run. We have to understand in a meta sense, in an overarching sense, the world through the lens of God's redemptive plan for all creation, not just the way I think certain things should be. We live in an awesome moment in history, right, where we can 
um, see what's going on in our workplaces and corporations and in government and all these places, and we can hold people accountable to that, and we can, we can work with them in that. But we also live in a day where we have a whole bunch of publishers and very few editors, right? I can, I can write my opinion on Facebook, I can write my opinion on Twitter, and I don't send it off to anyone to edit it first or to say, well, this sounds a little bit, you know, rude, this sounds a little bit of this, or um, this sounds a little bit that. So we are all publishers here in 2018, but we have very few editors. And I think the way we engage in public commentary, the way we engage in discussions on Facebook and, and on Twitter is of a lot of spiritual significance. And so I want to give sort of three things, because as I picture Jesus looking out at the crowds, I think of us looking out at the crowds today. And what do we see when we see the crowds? Do we see sheep without a shepherd, or do we see a bunch of dumb people who need me to tell them how to be smarter? Do we see a bunch of people who, if they would only listen to me, right, their lives would be so much better? Or maybe we see our political enemies, whatever they may be, on either side of the aisle, and we, um, we see them through that lens. And before they're a human being who needs redemption, they are that thing. So when engaging in public commentary, then when dealing with these crowds, I offer three suggestions and three tips to help you think through how to sort of live in the public square today. I hope these are helpful. Tip one. My experience is not normative. My experience is not normative. What I mean by that is, not everyone has had the same experience I've had. I'm a white guy who grew up in middle class America in Liberty, West Virginia. Some of y'all live 20 miles from there and you still don't know where it is. Right? That's my experience. That's been my experience. So whenever I have a, a commentary on something, it is very, very possible that a black kid from Brownsville, Brooklyn, has had a very, very different experience than me. The second thing that I always like to keep in mind when engaging in public commentary is this. I can be wrong. I know, you're shocked. You're shocked. I can be wrong. And I don't have all data at my disposal at all times to make the best commentary. But the third thing that's guided me in sort of engaging in public thought is that my hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. That if the worst things come to pass in Charleston or in D.C., that my hope is secure in the Lord Jesus. As you look at the crowds, engage the crowds. Be a part of the crowds. Do your thing in the crowds, whatever your thing in the crowds may be. But remember, your experience is not normative. You can be wrong, and your hope, like mine, is in Christ. Little did these people know, the crowd in the first century in our text today, that Jesus, the one before them, has come to be their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16, reminds us that a shepherd would one day come who would shepherd God's people into a new covenant. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 34 in just a few verses. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on their mountains of Israel. Verse 15, listen to this. I myself, God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek 
the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat, and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. How powerful is that? God says, I will be their shepherd. I will seek my sheep. I will go and get my lost sheep. I will feed them. I'll take care of them. And I will feed them in justice. Jesus is more than a teacher. Jesus is a shepherd for wandering crowds, people like me and like you. Good shepherds know their sheep. They love their sheep and they protect their sheep. His patience, his mercy, and his kindness know no bounds. Now, his disciples, maybe not. Look with me in verses 35 uh, to 37. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37, but he answered them, You give them something to eat. And I, I think we can spiritualize this a little and, and miss kind of the humor and what's going on. Because remember, remember, where are we going? We've worked really hard. It's time to rest. So the disciples are exhausted. And here we go. They can see the crowds like, oh, he's going to do it, isn't he? He's going to do it. He's going to love these people. He's going to care for these people. We're going to be here for hours. Awesome. Great. Didn't want to go to church tonight, but it looks like that's where we're going. So um, they say, oh, Jesus, you know, this is, this is really a, a desolate place, and, and it's late, and these people, oh, I'm sure they're hungry. I mean, it's like today, you know, it's like we're out Wayne, and Tudor's is closed, right? And so we got to get back to town uh, quickly. And so um, the disciples are coming up with every excuse they can. Oh, you know, it's going to get dark, and we know these streets aren't safe when it's dark out here in uh, these parts, and so we need to get home um, Let's get, they need to get some food. And then Jesus responds with, okay, you feed them. It's like, you want me to, you realize there's 5,000 men, like, again, historians say there are 20,000 people wandering around at this point. You want me, okay, 12 of us, to feed up to 20,000 people. And so they respond like uh, many of us would, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So uh, 200 denarii is uh, give or take eight months wages. Eight months' wages for your average worker. And the disciples certainly would make way, way less than your average worker. So, okay, that's fine. Do you want us to take $20,000? Do you want us to take $30,000, $40,000, and just go buy everyone food? Because we can do that, right? We can take $40,000 and go buy all these people food. And I just see them shaking their head. And I can see the sarcasm just oozing from what they're saying. A command is resting on the disciples that seems completely unattainable. But with God, it's going to happen. But if we want to see God do the impossible in our lives, then we have to just start with doing what he says. If we want to see God do the impossible in our lives, maybe, I don't know, that's helping you fight through bitterness, helping you fight through temptation, maybe reconciling hurt relationships, maybe it's using you to see, bring others to Christ. These things all seem impossible to you. But maybe you will see God do the impossible if you simply do what he says. Verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And again, I see, like, go and see. I can see the 12 of them getting together and walking to get the food. Like, yeah, let's, there's going to be thousands and thousands of loaves sitting there, aren't there? Yeah, right. And so how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So, and then exercise in futility from their perspective, they, they go and they see. We got five loaves, Jesus. We got five loaves and we got two fish. 
So unless it's going to be an atomic-sized meal, it does not look like anyone's going to get to eat. Verse 39, then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And in verse 41, the stage is set for a messianic banquet. As Moses fed God's people with manna in the wilderness, Jesus, the true and better Moses, the bread of life himself, will feed God's people in this field. Jesus takes the bread and he takes the fish. He looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and he broke the loaves. And he gave them disciple to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. And they were satisfied. And to top it all off, there's a basket at the end of the night for every single disciple. right? And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Everyone was fed. The disciples were a part of it. The disciples did the very impossible thing they thought they could not do. And they didn't do it because of how great they were. They were sarcastic probably the whole time. They were ignorant at best the whole time. Sarcastic at worst, ignorant at best the entire time. But yet everyone was fed and the disciples were a part of it. Jesus trusted his father. The disciples trusted Jesus and the impossible happened. Not only did everyone eat, and not only was everyone satisfied, but there were 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple to remember that God provides where there seemingly is no provision. Jesus' church is the bread of life. As he multiplied that bread on that morning, he is multiplied for us. There is enough Jesus for you. There's enough Jesus for me. There's enough Jesus for us all. Come to him. Eat of him, spiritually speaking. He is the bread of life. He is living water. He can satisfy your soul. He can give you renewed purpose. He can heal your wounds. And only Jesus can do these things. Charles Spurgeon said, come then, weary, hungry sinner. You have nothing to do but take Christ. Open your mouth and receive the food. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all you need. Faith to receive what Christ provides is all you need. Verse 45. Immediately, again, Mark writes quickly. We go from pericope to pericope, like story to story, passage to passage, very, very quickly. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So now, it is, in fact, time to rest. And after he had taken leave of them, Jesus, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when, every, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. In verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. And, and 6 a.m., about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So, really quickly, um, Jesus sort of makes his disciples go. They've, they've, they've served the crowd, they've served the food, and now it's time to go and, and rest. It's worth noting that the disciples are going to run into a storm, right? But doesn't Jesus send them out there? Doesn't Jesus send them into the storm? He does. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So Jesus sends them into the storm, but he sends them into the storm so he'll meet them in the storm. But where does Jesus go? In verse 46, he takes leave of his disciples and he went up to pray. 
verse 48, he saw miraculously as well. I think that miracle kind of gets lost in all this. How did he see them out there struggling, right? He saw them struggling with the sea along about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. I'm sure like Jesus, we all pray until 3 a.m. and to 6 a.m. So um, imagine in your prayer life at 4 a.m. you supernaturally seeing something that's uh, miles perhaps away. But he sees his disciples out in the sea and the storm is raging and they are struggling with it. The text says he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. What, what does he mean that he, he means to pass by them? A lot of commentators have struggled with this idea. But I think the answer is kind of simple, right? It's he meant to pass by them that they may see his glory. Sort of as um, the Lord passed by Moses at Mount Sinai. So Jesus is hoping to pass by his disciples that they may see him and know who he is by seeing his glory and his power. So they see Jesus in verses 49 to 50. They see this ghost coming out on the water and they, they think it's not Christ, right? They think it is, in fact, a ghost. They see him and they are terrified. And then Jesus speaks to them in verse 50. All saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I think the Greek reads better. So does Danny Aiken, my seminary's president, so I'm in good company, because I know very little about Greek. It reads as saying this, take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. If you remember how God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, he says what? I am who I am. This statement, I am, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, is sort of the statement of divinity. So when Jesus is coming to his disciples, right, when he's meaning to pass them by like the Lord did to Moses, and Jesus is now doing to his disciples that they may see his glory, he says, he gets in the boat and he says, take heart, it is I, take heart, I am. So in a very real and subtle sense, what God is saying in these moments, what Jesus is saying in these moments is this, take heart, I'm God. Take heart, I'm God. In the midst of the struggle, when they felt all alone, right, when they thought that Jesus, wow, he sent us out in this storm, I sure wish he were with us to get us out of this, Jesus sees them, Jesus cared about them, and Jesus came to them, and he came to them to show them who he is. And so wherever you might be this morning, if you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, Jesus sees you. He cares about you. He knows what you're walking through. He knows the deepest, darkest struggles that you have that no one else knows you have. He knows the situation that you're in. He knows the sins you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you. He knows all these things about you. He sees them. But here's the incredible truth. He cares about you. He loves you. And here's the best news of all. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. It is good news that God's with us in these storms. It's good news that God's with us in darker moments of our lives. It's good news that God's with us in the mountaintop moments of our life. But here is better news. It's better news that he's God of the storm. Not only does God meet us in the storm, but he's God of the storm. He is in control of the winds and the waves. He is God but here's the kicker. They still have no idea who he is. 
They still have no idea this is God. Imagine being the disciples and seeing all that they've seen and still just completely missing the point. And if you are a Jew in the first century, a lot of these sort of things that we're noticing, right, that, that a shepherd would be promised who would be God's people, and imagine seeing Jesus out in this field, and you're very familiar with Moses feeding God's wandering people, and here comes the wandering crowd, and Jesus feeds them from nothing just like Moses did. And uh, y- y- there's all these metaphors that we can see and then if you were in the first century, especially, you'd be more familiar with the Jewish text, and you, you could see, oh my gosh, th- this guy is incredible. He is divine. He is making all these statements about who he is. But they couldn't see him. They didn't get it. And the text says they did not understand about the loaves. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. Because their hearts were hard. I think there's good news here for me uh, and for you, because I'm much more like the disciples than I'd like to admit in these situations. Like the disciples, I am two things. I'm ignorant at what God's doing around me so often. But even worse than being ignorant, I'm so often hard-hearted. I'm so often hard-hearted and callous to the brokenness around me, the brokenness that we see in our lives and in others' lives. But here's good news. Jesus didn't give up on his disciples. He didn't quit. He didn't say, look what I've done. I've fed thousands and thousands of people, and you were a part of it, and you still don't get it. You still don't get it. Or you were out on this boat in the middle of the night, and no one was here to help you, and I just showed up, and you still think I'm just another guy? (laughs) Like, do you not see, like, what's going on here, right? He doesn't do that. He's patient. In this text, we see his power, but we're struck by his glory. Yeah, the miracles are impressive, but I'm struck by something even more impressive. God is the one performing them. The point of the feeding the 5,000, which is way more than 5,000, the point of Jesus walking on water isn't, wow, it's pretty cool that you can multiply food. The point isn't, wow, this guy can walk on water. My Uncle Jimmy tried that and fell right in. <laughs> you know? That's not the point of these texts. The point of these texts is that we might see Jesus bless this bread and surrender it to the Father and say, Lord, take with this little and do but much. And that we might see Jesus in relationship with his Father because that's who he is. He's the son of his Father. He is the only Son of God, fully God, fully man, the eternal second person of the Trinity. This is God. And then the walking on the water is impressive, not because it seems to defy the laws of matter, but the walking on water is impressive because when Jesus gets to the boat and he says, take heart, I am. The same God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush thousands and thousands of years ago, that God has appeared to you in this boat at 3 a.m. And the same God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago is the same God who appears to these disciples in the middle of this ocean, not ocean, in the middle of this uh, sea, this lake, uh, this body of water, right, at 3 a.m. is the same God who appears to me and who appears to you this morning at 12.08 p.m. In Charleston, West Virginia. Worship team, if you guys would 
lead us to the Lord's table, and we will follow you in just a moment. This isn't David Blaine, right? This isn't a, a huckster who is trying to make a buck off of some uh, skill or talent that he has. This is God. We see his authority, but we're struck by his humility. Right? I would want to shake my disciples and say, didn't you see what I've just done? Didn't you see? But he doesn't. We are um, going to take the supper. We do this every other week. Um, the supper is sort of like the, the family table for Christians. Spiritually, I pray this morning that we would feast on Christ. Jesus is the bread of life. Only he can satisfy. Church today, turn to Jesus. Tomorrow, turn to Jesus. The day after and forevermore, turn to Jesus. When you approach the table, um, what you're doing is a couple of things. You are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes, as Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. That you are proclaiming that Jesus has come, that Jesus has lived, that Jesus has died, that Jesus has risen, and that Jesus will come again. So as you walk to that table in just a moment, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are uh, making that proclamation. The table is for Christians uh, only. Uh, as instituted by our Lord and as taught by Christian scriptures and uh, church teaching for thousands of years. But we want you to know if you're not a Christian and you're visiting this morning, we're really glad you're here. And we want you to feel welcome and comfortable as others partake of the supper. Feel free to stay in your seats. Um, but if you're like me, um, first of all, I want to applaud you for being here if you're in that situation. Because going to churches is a very intimidating thing for me um, to do. And, and so I'm, it's, it's awesome that you've chosen to do that this morning. Um, but we ask that you, you not take the supper until you become a Christian, until you become a Christian. You can stay in your seat, but if you think someone's looking at you, because I could think that, they're not, but if you think that, feel free to walk up and, and walk to the table and uh, just look at the elements and uh, then just return to your seat like everyone else would. So I'm going to pray for us, and then if you're a follower of Jesus who's not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, I, I invite you to join us to partake of the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, and to drink of um, the, cup of Christ, the cup of salvation, the blood of Christ. So if you would pray with me. Father, um, we love you. In our text today, uh, we see you move in power and grace. What I'm struck by as we wind down is your patience. You are our patient shepherd. I can miss your goodness. I can miss your glory so often in my life. But today, Lord, I come to you with the whole congregation. We're yours. May we feast on you today. May we feast on you tomorrow. And may we feast on you forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the next few moments, you're welcome to approach the table uh, at sort of your leisure. And then we'll sing together, and then we'll be dismissed.